This is episode 111 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me today. Jonathan Fields joins me for a second time today to discuss his new book, How to Live a Good Life. The journey of writing this book has been a particularly interesting one, for the process required him to step into a very uncomfortable role at the same time that it required him to immerse himself in literature that he had dismissed. We discuss this evolution as well as the places that a lot of people struggle with living a good life. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm delighted to introduce you to Jonathan Fields again. Jonathan is on a quest to inspire possibility. A New York City dad, husband, entrepreneur, and award-winning author, he founded mission-driven media and education venture, Good Life Project, where he and his team lead a global community in the quest to live more meaningful, connected, and vital lives, produce a top-rated podcast and video series with millions of downloads and views in more than 150 countries, and offer a growing catalog of events, trainings, and courses. His new book, How to Live a Good Life, Soulful Stories, Surprising Science, and Practical Wisdom offers a gateway to a life of meaning, connection, and vitality. To celebrate the book's release and inspire early interest, Jonathan is doing something pretty extraordinary. In addition to offering fantastic pre-order bonuses, he's teamed with the One Tree Planted Foundation to plant a 10,000-tree good life forest. When you pre-order your copy of the book before the October 18th publication date, You'll also be sponsoring a tree and doing good for the planet and for you. You can get all the details at goodlifeproject.com forward slash book. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining me on the Creative Giant Show again. I'm honored because I'm always always super excited to talk to you. But I'm also honored because you are actually one of the few people that I recorded an interview with before there was the Creative Giant Show. I was still sort of thinking about it. So this was way back in like 2013. Can you believe it's been that long? Wait, there was a time that there wasn't a Creative Giant show? There was a time when there wasn't a Creative Giant show. There's also a time where there wasn't a Good Life Project podcast, too. That's so, crazy pants. <laughs> crazy pants. So um, I'm excited to talk to you because um, I've been waiting for a long time to um, get my hands on how to live a good life since we've been talking about it for quite a while. Um, yep. Yeah, and so um, had a chance to read it over the weekend. Um, loved it. Um, I, I, and I'll talk about some of the reasons I love it. Um, and, and you just have to deal with it cause I know that's going to make you uncomfortable, but there we go. Yep, uh, it will. <laughs> okay. Um, so, you know, this is your third book you've written a lot of other stuff, but from my perspective, this book was a long time in the not making because you really didn't see yourself as a personal development guy. Right. Yep. Like I'm in the entrepreneurship and marketing and, you know, um, creativity. I'm not that guy. Um, despite the fact that 800 CEO Reed had, uh, named your second book, a personal development book of the year. In a lot of ways, your first book career renegade was still sort of on the personal development side. It was, it was infusion. So, um, we could talk about the resistance to doing that, but I want to ask really, what was the shift for you that said, you know what, I'm going to step into this space. Hmm. It didn't come easily. <laughs> um, and truth is I'm still in it. Um, you know, that I remember, you know, my last book was 2000, came out 2011, Uncertainty. And mm-hmm. I remember a couple months later, in order to see Yori came out and they said number one personal development book of the year, which is, you know, it's awesome. It's this prestigious organization that really vets books. And I kind of, I, I think we had this conversation back then. I was like, wow, it's so nice to be recognized for my work. And at the same time, I was like, I am not the personal development guy. Like, I'm the serious person, you know, I'm, I'm the thinker and I'm the, you know, the doer and I'm about entrepreneurship and making stuff happen. And, um, and, and I, I, I pretty much think I remember you either, either I saw it happen or I kind of knew what was happening in your head as you rolled your eyes. <laughs> and, and most, I, I think pretty much everyone around me kind of you had the same response and they were like, well, yeah, you, you are all those things, but at the heart of all of it, you know, we've always known for you, it's about how those processes change the person within the experiences. 
And it's taken me a long time to come to that, not because that's not what I'm really about. It absolutely is. I do love the process of creation. I do love entrepreneurship. I do love art um, and the pursuit of craft. And at the same time, I'm deeply fascinated by how those processes change the person um, who's going along like the journey. And, um, and that, if I'm really honest, that's probably the deeper fascination of mine. That's probably, if I look at the through line for my entire adult life, that's actually the through line. It's the development of human potential. It's the development of the human being. And so I think there came a time where, um, I just told, you know, it's funny. I, I've often thought, you know, was there a moment where it was just like, oh, just give it up, step into it. This is who you are. Is there something that happened that kind of snapped me into saying, okay, this is who you are, stand in it, be open about it. And I don't think there is. I think my experience with Good Life Project over the years, where I'm sort of more and more forward-facingly about the human condition, has almost served as a long, slow exposure therapy <laughs> to kind of say like, you know, people actually will show up if I talk about this. They, they, we can still build a company. We can still build community. We can still serve if, you know, people still think that this is really what I'm largely about. So it's been a process, but even writing this book, I mean, you know, but you know, your listeners probably don't know, this is not the book that I sold. I sold the book, which was about something else. And then it took me a while to come around to the fact that actually the book that I needed to write was How to Live a Good Life. And then even writing it, I had a lot of struggle justifying writing a book where I positioned myself as being somebody who really had any kind of answers. Because, I mean, look at what I do for a living. You know, I ask people questions. And I'm much more comfortable in the position of being the one who's asking the questions, being the student, learning at the feet of amazing teachers, and not having the spotlight shown on me, not being the one where people are saying, yeah, like, help us, provide us. But um, I guess increasingly, also, over the years, um, maybe I got more comfortable with the fact that maybe I do have something to say. And, and maybe I've actually known that for my entire adult life, but haven't wanted to step into that place, A, because I don't have any yearning or need for the spotlight. I don't need to be perceived as somebody who's, you know, a guru or a teacher or, you know, on high or anything like that. It's just, it doesn't appeal to me. It doesn't, it's not something I strive for. And I'm relatively introverted. So I don't, I don't aspire to, um, you know, being big in public on a nonstop basis. And, um, but I think part of what tipped this for me too I had already committed to the book, but even while I was writing it, I was still struggling with this. And then I turned 50 last year. And that it caught me by surprise because I wasn't reflective when I turned 30. I wasn't reflective when I turned 40. I just kind of went about doing what I do. When I turned 50, it was different. Um, I really paused. And, and I started asking myself, you know, what am I about and what am I doing in the world? And am I doing work that lights me up? Am I doing work that matters? And, um, what is it that I'm creating? Um, and how do I want to live each day? And I think re revisiting that process also is something that helped me sort of stand in this place where I'm still about entrepreneurship. I'm still about the creative process. and I'm about human potential. And I think there's also probably something else which is um, I should speak to, which is that I've had a negative association for years about the world of self-help slash personal development. Um, maybe because I never resonated strongly with many of the voices that have been traditionally coming out of that world. Um, either it was too driven by Dharma or metaphysics or um, too driven by slickness and marketing. And, I, I'm, and I'm not passing judgment on anybody. It's just not my style, not my approach. It's not the way that I want to bring myself or what I have to offer to the world. And, and I probably didn't want the association. Um, and it took a while for me to get comfortable with the fact that maybe I can actually just do it the way I need to do it and just be unapologetically me and let that land however it needs to land. And if it if it makes a difference, if people resonate with it, awesome. And if it doesn't, it's been a great exercise for me. So, and I'm thankful because 
it's it's landing in us is letting me do more of it and that's a good thing there's a lot to unpack there um one thing you know we've had a lot of conversations and i was i was thinking about as i was reading how to live a good life i was thinking about the trajectory of the good life immersion actually and when you look at that like the good life immersion one was very business and entrepreneurship like centric Mm -hmm. Right. Two mixed in more personal development. Right. And then three went even more personal development. Right. And so you mentioned that it was like a, a, you know, slow emotion therapy there. It's like even in the work that you were doing, it was unpeeling these layers and unpeeling these layers. And I agree with you. I'm, I'm the same way about personal development and productivity. Right. I mean, you know, my struggles with that. I'm like, there's a certain way in which it's seen in a certain way in which you're doing. And in the personal development literature, you have a lot of really big personalities, extroverts, and um, from my opinion, some really questionable practices, right? Um, Either between neuro-linguistic programming or some of the rituals that they have people do. I'm like, I'm not so sure that's it. Um, Or if you go back to say Stephen Covey, which was really in Seven Habits, was really a great book, but it had a very um, Christian-centric um, sort of metaphysically laden thing, which is one of, you didn't reference him, but you know, that's, that's part of the lineage, right? And that's what I really enjoyed about, one of the things I enjoyed about how to live a good life is you touched on some of those things, right? You touched on ritual, you touched on, I mean, there are three chapters on love. I was like, this is fantastic, right? <laughs> um, you touch on those things, but they're not the guiding principle that, that yeah. the book. I, I really wanted to make it um, sort of like philosoph- philosophy and theologically agnostic. Um, you know, so I do talk about a whole universe of different things, but also just trying to distill it into practices and say, look, you don't have to buy into anything here. In fact, in the beginning of the book, I say, look, I, I actually don't expect you to believe anything I'm telling you. I would never ask for blind faith in anything. Just try it. Just do the practices and see if it works for you. Um, and I don't, I don't want it attached. You know, within our community alone, we have this beautiful global community, a Good Life Project. And we have people who are devout Christians, who are Muslim, who are Buddhists, who are, you know, like pretty much any denomination and every faith. And yet we, this, we've formed this amazing tapestry of a community because we're brought together around something bigger, around sort of like a shared set of ideals. And I wanted the book to resonate similarly. I didn't want it to alienate. I didn't want anyone to not be invited to the party. That's what it comes down to. There's a quote from Bertrand Russell. I'm going to paraphrase it because I can never remember whether it's fools and fanatics or just fools. But it's, um, he, he says, the trouble with the world is that the fools are so certain of themselves and the wise men so full of doubts. Um, and there's been this long history, I think, and, and, you know, coming from a, philo- from a philosopher background or philosophical background, like I am, I'm, it's always really hard to show up and, and have the, um, confidence to assert that you might have something figured out, or at least you have a good question, but have the humility to know that you don't have the answer. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, that goes way back. And so um, I, I really resonate with that, with that because I'm, I'm like you, Jonathan, like I, in some ways, and, and we have conversations about this, I would much rather hide behind a lot of the other stuff. Like let's hide behind strategy execution. Let's hide behind systems. Let's hide behind some of these other things rather than just reveal this really human core that that's what it's about. You know, it's really about how to live a good life. Yeah, and and I think I mean completely agree, and and I think part of what's been going on with me also is I've been getting a little more comfortable with my own vulnerability and sharing. I mean, this is also beyond hopefully it being the most actionable book that I've ever written. It's the most personal by a, a pretty huge margin, and that makes me really uncomfortable. Um, and but I also I realized that I couldn't ask people to go to that same place, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to share publicly you know, personally vulnerable stories, but just privately, you know, and just reflecting. Um, I needed to, to model behavior if I was going to invite people to experiment with it in their own lives. And, uh, and that it's not something that I normally do. You know, I'm a fairly public person. 
Um, and at the same time, the vast majority of my life unfolds privately and nobody but my family and my close friends know about it. You know, so um, sharing some things where I actually had to ask certain, you know, like people in my life for permission to, okay, sharing it was a unique experience for me. And it's, it's something that still makes me a little nervous because I'm not entirely comfortable with it. But I think, I think it was important for me to do. And from the early feedback that I've gotten, those are also the moments that have really resonated most powerfully with people. Yeah, I mean, you open the story or you open the book with a story about your mom, right? Yeah. And I've only heard you tell that story in private, right? And in, in various small groups when I knew that you were, you were um, sort of pushing your vulnerability edge. And I was like, wow, um, he's, I, I, I've known, because we've talked about the book for so long, right? I, I've known that you're, you took a completely different approach with this one. Um, but I was like, oh, he's got me, right? I'm um, not saying that you haven't had me in the past, but like, it was more like hearing you talk in, in the private conversations and sort of yeah. the stage, you know? It's, it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I'm, I'm hearing a lot right now is I felt like we were just having a conversation reading the book. And that was really what I was going for. And what's so interesting to me as a writer is that is how hard it is for me to get back to my speaking voice in written word. Um, and it really, it took a lot of work. And I read the audiobook. I narrated the audiobook for it also. And it was the first big test for me to see, because to see how much I would stumble over my own written words. And the great news, at least for me, was that, you know, two days in this dark, small, tiny booth. Um, and I stumbled very little. And what I actually noticed is the few places where I kind of stumbled on some of the language were when I was actually reading longer quotes or narratives from other people. <laughs> Yeah. So let's talk about that because, you know, we, we both talk a lot about creative, um, about creativity and um, really insoling your words. Um, and at the same time, I'll speak for me. I won't speak for you on this one. When I go to write, especially something that I know is going to go um, in a book or if it's going to go to what I think is a big publication, um, all of a sudden my voice is not enough, Right. It's like, oh, I've got to make it sound different. I've got to make it sound smarter. I've got to bring my A game. And it's been this long sort of um, rewiring of that script where I'm like, people pay me as a professional speaker for my voice. People pay me as a consult consultant for my voice. And they pay me a lot more than they pay for the book. So something's got to be working there, you know? Yeah, I so agree. And you know what, actually, that's been a really interesting process for me too because, um, and I've tried to deconstruct it. What is it that makes me think that I have to write fancy? Um, I think what it comes down to is I wanted people to feel that I was smart. And I thought maybe the way to do that, to feed my, stroke my ego, it's purely ego-driven you know, was to use more complex um, syntax and language and style choices. What I realized was I really don't, I don't actually need that in the end. All I really want to do is get what's in my heart and my mind out into the world and hope that it moves people to take action on it. And I can't do that if they're, if they're um, tripping over the language and then I can't make them work just to understand what the idea is. My job is, is to spoon feed it. And great writing is, is what I've come to believe is not complex. You know, it, it's really easy. Great writing is great. Writing happens when the writing vanishes. Like the, the, the most, the best writing I've read is when I don't notice the writing. And then I go back, I'm like, Oh my God, I need to reread that because Wow. Then I do like a second pass because I'm so lost just in everything but the writing that it vanishes in the background. And I think that's really what it's about. It's funny. I've read um, a couple, I think it was while I was actually working on the manuscript, I read uh, Liz Gilbert's Big Magic. And it struck me that the whole book is just her having, it's literally like you're kicking back and having a beer with her at like some cafe or a cup of coffee. You know, and she's like, dude, here's what you get. Yeah. And, and yet that book resonated really powerfully with, you know, zillions of people. And it just really makes you realize, you know, it's not, it's not about that. Um, and I had to just drop the whole need to stroke my ego and try and write in a way that made me sound, you know, like adequately intelligent and articulate and just say, you know, that's, 
that's not what this is about. It's about being of service. And I can't be of service when I'm sitting there trying to feed my own ego at the same time. Yeah. I mean, you and I both have a disadvantage in this way. I mean, you're your formal education um, is as an attorney, right? And so with that style of writing, it really is to beguile and stomp and confuse, like and obscure things, right? And so you really are trying to do that, right? And it's, I'm, it's tactical ambiguity. It's tactical ambiguity. And, you know, from a, philo- from a philosophical background, a lot of it is using language that, you know, is um, very laden with words which you have to run to a dictionary or just know what you're talking about. It's very, um, very industry specific, a lot of jargon and a lot of really complex sentences. Like you get rewarded for a sentence that goes on for a page, right? Like if you've ever read John Stuart Mill, like you can flip a good page or two and he's still on the same paragraph, right? <laughs> and so it's a lot of unlearning all of that. And it's not about appearing to be smart. It's not about um, making people work to understand you. It's you doing the work so that people understand. Yeah, and, and what it comes down to also, because at least with this book, uh, you know, my primary goal was just to create a tool that people would do. So if I want to, I want to preserve as much bandwidth as my reader has as humanly possible to do the work rather than have to figure out how to do the work. So part of my job also was to make it just so easy so that they had you know, all their self-regulation and willpower and emotional and cognitive bandwidth available, but just go and then do the work and not have to struggle to figure out what to do. It's like, no, no, it's really simple. Here's a story. Here's a bit of a narrative so you can understand how it unfolds. Here's a bit of science. So your rational brain says, oh, I, I get why this works. And then here's something to do, a simply do this action. And, um, I, and you're writing it. I wasn't sure how I would feel about writing the book. And, and uh, the book went through so many iterations. And in the end, I was like, you know what? I'm actually really proud of it um, because it's the most vulnerable and hands down the most actionable thing that I've ever done. I think it's the most respectful book that I've written. And it's, I think it's the kindest book. I hope, I hope it is. I hope it's something that treats people with kindness and compassion and respect. Um, and maybe that's become increasingly important to me and become more of a guiding metric too. Well, it turns out that if you put enough notches in your belt, like you don't need the smart, brilliant, like world changing sort of book. You, you need to sort of, you need to write the book that actually changes people's lives. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got a lot of notches at this point. Um, as I was reading, um, sort of the intro, you know, there are three buckets. There's the vitality bucket, there's a connection bucket, and there's a contribution bucket. And what was inter- interesting, bro, is like, as I read that, I remembered walking into um, um, Camp GLP2, right? And you were at the um, tail end of the second immersion. And on the board, when I walked into the wrong room, luckily no one was there, um, there are three buckets, right? Um, and I was like, huh. Um, I, I wonder, well, let me put it this way. I noticed so much of you showing up in this and I, what I felt was that this book was structured on something that you would teach first and then write as opposed to write first and then teach. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, and it was, it was very much a back and forth process. I mean, cause I was teaching this stuff the whole time cause I wanted to see if it was valid. You know, I had no interest in creating this really cool, simple model that then people interacted with and like, oh, well, but it doesn't actually do anything. You know, so the whole time I was, you know, and thankfully we have a part of our core of our business is actually we, we engage with people in, in programs. So I had, you know, a series of people that I could test these ideas with and see how they, they worked in the real world and modify and change and stuff like that. But yeah, it was a constant back and forth between coming up with the ideas, testing them, tweaking them, making them more robust, trying to figure out how to, how to teach them in a way that was the easiest to digest and the easiest to take action on. And then eventually, which, which is interesting, like going back to the early part of a conversation where I said, this actually is not the book that I sold to my publisher. We talked about that, right? Okay. A, a little bit, but we'll, let's go into that deeply because you sold, can I, can I share what you sold? 
Uh, maybe not because I may not. still write it down the road. Okay, so go ahead. Uh, so I sold the book based on one particular concept, which is still a deep fascination of mine. And it, it, for a variety of reasons, it wasn't the right book at the right time. And But it took me about a year of research and working on it to really know, to hit that point where I'm like, hmm, this isn't it. And I went back to my publisher at that point and I, and I said, and I told them what was going on. And I told them the backstory and the research that I've been doing. And they're like, yeah, we get it. And I said, but at the same time, I can write this other book and it's called How to Live a Good Life. And I told them what I thought, you know, I wanted to write. And they were like, not only do we love it, but why didn't you actually sell this to us in the first place? Because it's so much more aligned with who you are and your company and what you do in the world. And I realized the reason I didn't is because a year earlier, it hadn't fully formed to a point where I felt like I was ready to write it yet. I was still developing the ideas and testing it with people and putting it out into the world and getting feedback. So it took that, that extra year, you know, it was in the, in process for years, truth be told, but it was that final year where a lot of things really touched down where I felt like it was coherent enough and validated enough for me to actually then turn around and write, you know, like a full length book about, um, and then even then, um, it took three manuscripts and a lot of uh, a lot of will and a bit of suffering um, to figure out how to do it right and uh, and me learning a completely different approach to to my craft. At one point, you actually had to go back and immerse yourself in the in the field because you hadn't actually done the reading in in personal development to see what what the means were and what the structures were. Yeah, I mean, I. My reading is not sort of what you would call classic personal development or self-help. You know, I go deep into philosophy, Eastern philosophy, especially uh, Buddhism, uh, you know, uh, classic translated texts from Sanskrit. Um, and then on the, on the flip side, I go deep into academic journals and studies and positive psychology and cognitive science. And I bridge those two worlds. And, but I've spent very little time in sort of like the center which was this mainstream world of self-help slash personal growth. And I didn't really understand what the genre was about, but I knew that I was now writing in that space. And I also I made a choice to move to a different publisher who really just the association with that publisher with Hay House also pretty squarely positioned me in this new space. And, and it took a lot of work. So I realized at one point I had to actually go out and, go read a whole bunch of books in this space so I could understand what the genre was about and what people wanted and how best to serve them. And so it took some work until I really figured that out. And, uh, and it took, that's why it also took three manuscripts because the first two were not that they were sort of like my old school, deep dive, nuanced, philosophical, like deep science, you know, with lots of stuff, which is really interesting for me. But again, to a certain extent, it's almost, it was almost disrespecting the people that I most wanted to serve who were really busy people in the middle of their lives um, who, who really genuinely did want to evolve and tap into a side of themselves that they couldn't figure out how to get access to. And my job was to actually um, make that as doable as possible. That's one of the things that I love most about the book is that it's a synthetic book and synthetic in the sense where you're pulling into different traditions, different literature. It's really from what I understand, it's, it's a book designed for people who are, haven't read all of the stuff, right? Who, who aren't pros in this and haven't read, you know, the five best books on personal development It's really to get you started. And, you know, I love that you went there and, I was thinking as I was reading this book, I was like, it's really hard to write a one-on-one book, right? Um, to write a one-on-one book, and not because it's um, anything about the reader or the subject, but because you have to go back to that place. Yeah. So remember when you once told me that in, in your like team Slack account, there's, you know, like, there's one channel, which is basically like everyone gets to slap Charlie's hand. Yep. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I essentially found myself doing that nonstop while writing the book because I kept drifting into that. Uh, let me just, I'm going to go off the deep end on this one thin slice. I want to go really deep on this. I was like, no, 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 no. That's not my job in writing this book. You know, and I did draw from a, a huge cross section of worlds to create this, but, um, but that, that wasn't what this book had to be about, but that was my, earlier wiring as a writer and not that I won't go back and do that. And not that I won't potentially take some of the topics from this book 
and go really deep into them and make like a, a huge exposition based on them. But that's not what this book was about. And I kept having over and over. I was like, no, 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 back to like, there, there is a set of constraints. There's a framework that this book needs to follow to do what it, it's here to do in, in the planet and in people's lives. And that's what I had to stick to. And that was, in fact, one of the things that kept me in the process was that I kept telling myself as a creative person, um, I was learning to create, I was learning to craft using a new set of constraints. And that was my creative challenge. And that's one of the things that, you know, if I, if I wore one lens that would have destroyed me. And, but if I chose a lens of, okay, so this is my job as a writer now is to see how close to mastery I can come under this new set of constraints. And the better I can do with that, you know, like that is my creative quest for you know the better part of a few years was to do that. And that challenge, because I'm a little bit wired to want to make it happen, is one of the things that kept me in it too. Yeah, I'm in the thrash mode right now, as you know, with, with yes. the, the, the book that I'm working on. And I, I've long said that there are two different styles of writing. There's explanatory and exploratory, right? And as the writer, I think we have so much more affinity for the exploratory writing where we don't know where it's going and it's still new and it still has that magic for us, right? And there, there's a certain... Um, every, every creator would know what I mean. There's a certain place when you're in that exploratory mode and that thrill of that adventure. Um, but the challenge is largely the book that I'm working on is an explanatory book. I'm explaining things to a wider audience that I've been talking about for the last 10 years. And so um, I was talking to another author about this and I was like, that's been my challenge is to capture, this is what you said, to capture that magic of someone learning this for the first time or someone learning this in a new context and really getting excited about that as opposed to getting excited about the frontiers of the research and um, observation that, that I've been doing. Right. And it's so hard, man. So I, I was, I was so glad to see us like, okay, I have a model, someone I talk to a lot <laughs> that's managed to do it. Um, I can do this too. Yeah. And by the way, like I didn't create that model. It actually, when I started reading all of these, I went out and I bought all the best selling books in this space over a period of about a decade. And I read all of them. Not because actually I was trying to learn from all the books, but because I was looking for uh, a formula or a framework. I was looking for the similarities. I was looking for my new set of creative constraints for that genre. And I found them pretty quickly. They all pretty much follow this one thing. So it, I, I, didn't, I didn't create the framework, you know, but I was able to, we've talked about this privately. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a pattern recognition person. The more data points that come in, I start to see patterns. So the pattern became really clear to me. Um, the more that I read and I was like, huh, okay. So I, I get the framework now I get the constraints and, um, now my job is to write within those and try and make it as good as I can within those. At the same time, I'm, I'm wired for story to a certain extent as well. And I'm, I didn't want to lose that. I want to really keep that a powerful part. It's interesting. I'm, I'm reading right now. There's a new book out called the bestseller code. Hmm. guys took machine learning um, and they basically deconstructed, you know, like tons of New York Times bestselling books to see if actually the computers could figure out what makes for a bestseller. And it's, it's controversial because there's a lot of disagreement about it. But one of the things that they said is essentially that within the first, at the very outside 40 pages, but very likely it's probably a quarter of that. Um, your writer needs to create this sort of like embodied emotional oof. And you're like, and it has to happen very quickly. And the most powerful way I know to do that is through story, um, which is why I started the book the way I started it. Um, I also went a little bit contrarian with that framework, though, because the vast majority of books in this space start out with the author's personal hero's journey. And um, maybe that's where the rebel in me <laughs> <laughs> maybe kind of kicked in and said, you know what, um, I get why it's there. And I get that at some point it has to be woven into it. But, and I did speak to my own personal journey, but um, I've seen, I had just read so many books where it was the exact same thing in the beginning, but just with, you know, like slightly different players and different locations and different names. And I didn't want to start my book the same way of, you know, like I was down and out and all this bad stuff happened. And then 
you know, sort of really telling the classic hero's journey. I understand it. It's valid. It's powerful. I just, I want to do something different. And so I told the story that was raw and vulnerable and emotional. And, and I think accomplished a lot of what that hero's journey would have accomplished, but in a way that um, my sense is you don't see it coming. Yeah. You got a surrogate hero from the beginning. Right. Um, which, which was different. I was, I was about to ask you, um, anytime we as creative people see a template, right. Um, there, there are two things that happen. Maybe for me, I won't say everyone, but two things happen for me. I'm like, yes, there's a template. I don't have to figure it all out by myself. That's one side. And the other one is like, this template is not going to be me. It is. I have to know it is not going to be representative of who I am. It won't fit me. <laughs> Right. And so I was going to wonder how you resolve that tension. Part of it is with the hero story, right? Yeah. So there's actually a third voice in my head. Um, the third voice is, well, that's no fun. You know, it's really, so I, you know, I spent a lot of years learning to write copy, um, you know, going deep into the language of influence. And one of the things that you're taught very, very early on as a copywriter is you build what they call a swipe file. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is a, a file. It used to be like a literal folder, but now it's you know generally a, a you know an Evernote folder. Um, and you accumulate all these you know you copy and paste you know or you accumulate all these examples of copy that you know has been tested and performed really well. And then the idea is when you get a new job or you're launching something new, you go and find the closest analog because you know it's been proven, you know it works, and then you quote swipe it, meaning you don't copy it but you use the general template, you do this as a template for yours. And so I started to build the swipe file. And what I realized really quickly is I understand why you do it. But for me, because a big part of it was, um, you know, like it was figuring out the puzzle of human psychology. Um, I didn't want to follow it. And I rarely, if ever use swipe files when I write copy and I've been writing copy, you know, everything from, short emails to, if you printed them out, 30-page sales letters for a lot of years now. And I always do it differently than anybody else. And maybe sometimes to my detriment, but because as a creative person, it's not fun for me to follow the template. And um, that's actually been, been a source of conversation with me in the world of speaking these days too, where you're generally like your, you know, your, your, your full-time speakers as a general rule will create anywhere from one to three talks. They'll dial them in, completely master them. A number of them will commit them to embodied memory, meaning they go beyond memorizing them. They know them so deeply that they can almost speak them like they're fresh, but they're the exact same thing over and over and over. And I struggle with doing that. I don't like templates because it's not, it, it takes, it takes the problem solving the novelty out of it for me. And I like problem solving. Yeah, you and you and me is on that. You and me and well as well on that one. If I can talk, um, the thing the thing that I've done with that one is I, I've found a, a third way for me. It's like I'm not going to build them from scratch every time, right? Because that's I'm not going to do that, right? That's crazy making. Because inevitably that means you're making them the day before. Yeah, um, and I'm not. I can't do the same one over and over again. And so I'm like, okay there are these modular elements to this that I can add this intro with this thing. And it's kind of like I'm, I, I can build and flop and hot swap them based on like, Oh, I can use this setup here, but I'm talking to executives here. So I need to use this module to put it yep. together. And then I need to have this outro. And so it's a different, it's a slightly different speech every time, which is just enough um, for me to stay in the game, but not so much that it's like, Oh, I'm just going to do the, I'm just going to do the start finishing talk. Yeah, no, I totally, and I, I kind of do the same thing. And what's interesting is um, in a past life, I owned a yoga center in Hell's Kitchen and, and I taught yoga for seven years. And after the first handful of years where I started to develop a level of confidence, what I, what I, I actually did the exact same thing teaching a 90-minute yoga class where I would never come in. I'd, I'd never had an end-to-end plan, but what I had was a really rich library of sequences that I knew were very effective at delivering one particular experience. And I knew, I knew the biomechanically intelligent and also subtle and anatomically intelligent way to sequence them. And I would draw on that library to, you know, just sort of create on the fly, knowing that I would get people where they needed to go, but I would, there was never any time where it was going to be exactly the same thing. And that would keep me in it. And I think it would keep them in it too. 
Yeah, because you never know what you're going to get. It's kind of like the the cracker back, the cracker jack box, right? You never quite know what you're going to get, but there's always that sense that there's going to be something exciting or cool or different, right? Yep. Um, I, I say that about a third of the of, of the prizes, the rest were lame, but those third made it all <laughs> worth it. All worth it. And then you never knew when you're going to get the peanuts. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, oh my God, a peanut, a peanut. I know. <laughs> they had behavioral psychology down with those Cracker Jack. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm, I have to imagine even like the sound of the, the peanut shaking against the box when it was down to like that last 10%. It was like they had somehow mastered you know, the, the thickness and the shape of the cardboard. Exactly. I could hear it at a mile away. <laughs> know exactly oh, what's happening. Oh, oh, it's going to be. Oh, it's the peanut. <laughs> All right. So the three buckets, vitality, connection, contribution of these three with the people that you've worked with, which um, have you found to be the one that's the hardest for people to keep filled? Uh, The first one that tends to go with creative professionals and entrepreneurs from what I've seen is vitality. The second one to go is uh, connection. Sometimes that's reverse, but it seems like most people feel like, um, optimizing their state of mind and state of body is the thing that they can get back the fastest and the easiest so they can let it go. And also, you know, it's easier because they tend to be the only ones telling themselves that things are falling apart. And a lot of times they can shut off that voice. Whereas with a connection bucket, if you start to walk away from your relationships, you know, if you stop uh, nourishing a connection with an intimate other or close friends or family members or like-minded community or a community based in source, um, those, those others will very often come back and say, this is not working for me. We, like, they're they're going to be your circuit breaker. And in the vitality side of things, very often your circuit breaker needs to be, it, it's internal unless you've actually created mechanisms to make it external and we're empowered other people to be like, dude, um, <laughs> this ain't right. And um, so that tends to be the thing that goes the fastest. And look, I'm, I'm raising my hand here too. I'm as guilty as the next person. When I'm heads down on a huge project for me, that's, that is the biggest challenge. I'm so fortunate. I work with my wife. I have a, you know, a small number of close friends that I stay in touch with and collaborate with. So it's kind of built into the way that I fill my contribution bucket. And, you know, so what I've had to build rituals, you know, so every morning I have a morning ritual that includes a certain amount of practices that are designed to cultivate my vitality, to fill my vitality bucket. And, but even then, you know, when, when things get really hot, um, those those sometimes falter and so i'm constantly sort of checking myself to come back to them yeah i did an audit for myself earlier this year and um i was like where am i most out of integrity with my message um where am i most out of integrity and it was in what you would say the vitality bucket right um because when i'm working with people and i'm telling people i'm like look your body is more than a head transportation device right? It, it, it is way more than just this thing that you have to take care of. It's smart. It, it provides a lot of insight. But when I looked at my sort of situation, I was like, you know, after the car accident and everything like that, I am most out of integrity there. Um, and so it's been challenging to get back into it, right? And um, just something that I've done and I've been doing this with Corey Huff is, you know, we go work out on Mondays and Thursdays unless we're out of town and we rearrange. And I was talking to him last week and I was like, you know, for years I've struggled with being consistent with working out and, and going to the gym. But this last little bit, it's been easy. It's been super easy. But why? Well, because we've got connection and vitality linked together yep. in a way that we're just ha- we're just like value stacking, right? Or habit yeah. stacking in a way that works. And so I just want to throw that out there for people. It's I agree with you. I've seen that same thing both in myself, but also in other creative people. It's like, well, you know, I've got so much to do. I'm just going to cr- head down and get it done. And without thinking that the vitality bucket actually creates more creative energy for you, right? It creates more time for you. Um, but like anything else, you've got to make time to make time. Yeah. Um, as you're saying that my eyes started to bug out and your head with your headphones became like a negative image. And it looked like you had two light gray um, Mickey Mouse ears on your head. That's fantastic. So I just want to tell you, I heard what you said, but just for a moment, I was mesmerized by your Mickey Mouse ears. 
And I'm not even the one drinking the fancy tea here. This is exactly true, right? I mean, we're, we're caught right in there. So, you know, I'm wondering. Go ahead. I, I, I want to speak to one thing, though, before we sort of move on from that, because you brought up a really important point, especially for people who are a little further into their lives, which is that you're going to get injured. You're going to get sick. You know, things are going to happen to your body which make it so that it's difficult to go back to the routines that you used to rely on to fill your vitality bucket. And that's happened to me. I have, you know, I taught vinyasa yoga for seven years and I did it. And I got to a point where, you know what, I've actually, my left shoulder has been reconstructed twice. I've rehabbed my knees a whole bunch of times because of aggressive athletics when I was younger. And that particular thing just wasn't working for me anymore. So I'm, I'm actually now in a point where I'm, I'm, Sort of, I'm, I'm on a mission where I'm, I'm testing and exploring all sorts of different things to sort of see, okay, what is the blend of movement and mobilization that's going to allow me to rebuild a regular routine that will carry me at least through like this season, if not, you know, like forever. Yeah. And you mentioned very early in the book that there are three rules about the buckets, right? And one of those rules is that they leak. And I'm glad you mentioned that because there are some times when it's just like a little dribble, right? Like the little dribble of life. And then there are times when they just completely fall apart, right? Um, and people come to me a lot of times because I've, I've tried system X and I've tried this productivity thing and I've, I've tried this habit. And after about three weeks, it doesn't work for me. And so it must not work. And I'm like, well, no, it seems like three weeks is just about the time that it takes to deplete one's willpower when it comes to a new habit or something like that, right? Um, I'm not going to go with the 21 days thing. I'm just saying um, the trick, I think, in living a good life is not as, you know, not getting the buckets full and keeping them there to use your language, but to replenish them. And that's what you say, I think, in like early on in the book. That's, that's the trick is not to get there and stay there, yeah, but to get there and continually replenish them. Yeah, I mean, it's the whole idea of it. it's it's um, a good life is a, is a practice. You know, it's not a place that you go to. It's not a thing you arrive at. It's a daily practice. And the beautiful thing about that also is that that means you can you can start to experience it now, like this day. Just start with the practices. Start doing a little something, and that those practices will never end. You know, and they'll keep changing and evolving to accommodate wherever you are in your life. Notebook is ever really done. You just got to, at a certain point, be done with the book because of deadlines and sanity. Um, so which topic or chapter would you rewrite or beef up if you had the chance and wherewithal to do so? You're, you're, there's no transference going on here, is there, Charlie? I'm just saying. I've heard other people <laughs> tell me this. Um, um, so in having written two manuscripts before this, um, I've actually written, basically, I've done deep dives into a whole bunch of the stuff that's in this. Um, I probably want to go deeper into meaning, deeper into belonging, um, deeper into... Mm, I think those are the two right now that um, I'm more called to. I was going to say happiness. Because what's interesting is... You know, here's a book about how to live a good life, and the only reference to happiness is a really abbreviated conversation in the final chapter. And um, but I think it's been covered. You know, we're we're sort of coming out of a window of a decade where there's been a vast amount of literature and research on the topic, and a ton of popular books on it. And what most of them come down to is that. Um, you don't you don't pursue happiness directly. That you do all of these other things, and happiness, like Viktor Frankl famously said, "Man's search for meaning ensues. Happiness, like success, ensues." What you do, all these other things, and that, in fact, making happiness the direct pursuit can 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 actually leave you less happy. Um, so I don't. I feel like I'm good with that, even though you know it's not like they're really clear answers. Um, the money relationship between happiness and life satisfaction is something that I'm probably going to circle back to at some point. But also, there's a lot of really interesting ongoing data around that that's actually kind of starting to refute some of the stuff that we've bought into over the last few years. And a, a lot of it has to do with Gallup making available a vastly larger global data set. And um, so... I'm probably going to revisit some of that conversation and dive into 
that uh, data set a bit more also and see what, is, what I can figure out. You've teased us. You're wonderful at that. Like you mentioned some of the data. Is it like a question like what are some of the, the things that um, are, are maybe under refutation right now with the data? So the idea of, um, well, number one, that all the data has to be questioned because whenever you're trying to measure happiness or life satisfaction, there's no objective standard. So it's this like ridiculously gray metric that we're trying to measure, you know, and what the researchers will tell you is that you can't actually say, okay, we're doing a study and it's got a hundred people in it and we're going to tell everybody, you know, like, this is what it's about and here's what happiness is. You tell us if you feel it or not. There's no, because you can't do that um, because it's a completely subjective experience and it's so gray and can encompass so many things. So they end up having to ask questions like, you know, did you smile or did you laugh in the last 24 hours? Things like that to try and sort of get a beat on it and get a proxy for happiness and let people define it in their own subjective terms. Um, so right away, you know, there's a huge amount of gray area, even if you have statistical analysis and data. And um, then beyond that, you know, the, the early data sets and the early research that I've seen showed this relationship that caught fire in the press, which is that, um, if you're struggling to, to get by, then every dollar that you earn does make you happier because it, it means now I can pay my rent. Now I can put food on the table. You know, now I can just maybe put away a tiny bit of money. Once you have all that comfortably covered, then every dollar that you earn after that, that relationship gets lost. You hit a threshold where you can work a ton more and earn a ton more and it doesn't make you happier. That may not be as clean as it used to be. Um, so I think there's more research that's looking into that now, even though we want it to be that way, because we all want to kind of be let off the hook to a certain extent. Um, the, on the flip side, um, there's this vastly larger data set now that people are looking into that correlates happiness and also life satisfaction or living a good life. And what it does seem to appear is that there is still a linear relationship between how much you earn and how satisfied you are with your life that goes up to potentially at least a quarter million dollars a year in income. And when you try and deconstruct what that's about and why that happens, there's a, there's a pretty good argument that says that a big chunk of that is because it gives you access to a much higher level of healthcare. And, and your life will be, especially as you move further into life, if you have really extraordinary healthcare, there's a good chance that you're actually going to be able to actually be more satisfied with your life and have you know, better outcomes um, in your life. Um, and that that crosses a variety of different cultures. You know, the data set that is is tr is huge. Um, but the challenge with a data set like that also is, you know, now we're talking, um, you know, a, a number of quantitatives and and all this stuff, and we're talking correlation. There's no causation. So who really knows what comes first? There's a lot of grayness in here. Um, where we really like to be able to just say, uh, once you got the basics covered, money doesn't matter. Or money totally does matter, um, you know, and it, you know, it makes you happy, but not necessarily satisfied, or it makes you satisfied, but not necessarily happy. And I think you could probably figure out which way you want to argue. Um, I'm at a point where I want to know more. Um, one thing that is crystal clear is that the way we spend money can actually increase your happiness and your life satisfaction. So now I want to read that book. You better get on it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this goes back. There's been this long-term um, going way back to the Greeks, right? Is there a fundamental um, set of things that make us happy, that for all humans make us happy? Or is it completely individualistic? So on the one hand, you say, this is, these are the seven things, the seven secrets of happiness. All humans need it. Now, that hand, you're like, well, every human is different. And so we can't come up with those criteria. And we still are at the point where 3,000 years later, we're playing that out, right? Yeah, and people will fiercely argue either side. I mean, I, I, you know, I've spent years now sitting down with hundreds of stunningly smart people who all answer the question very differently. Um, I remember at one point sitting down with Simon Sinek, and I said, you know, I asked this question at the end of every conversation, what does it mean to live a good life? And he, you know, and I've gotten so many different answers, and he's like, no, no, there's one answer. We've known it for years. There's only one answer to that question. And I believe it was serving others. Um, 
And so, but somebody else would tell me, no, 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 it's, you know, it's something entirely different. Somebody else would say it's something entirely different. So I'm, um, I'm not prideful enough to sit here and say, I know the real answer. Um, I'm just along the journey and in, in a very fortunate position to continue to explore and ask a lot of people questions. Yeah. I mean, I think the best we can do as guides here is just to lay out, like, here are the things that have made people happy. Here are the general categories of things that they fall under. Try them on and see. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, try them on and see and see if they work for you. Right. I mean, you know, like somebody coming out of Sir Ken Robinson, you know, grew up in post-war Liverpool, polio when he was four years old, living in the Iron Lung, you know, came out before that he was, you know, everyone looked at him as a little, like a mini soccer prodigy. And after that, his life has forever changed, you know? So take somebody like that and define, you know, tell him, you know, like ask him how he defines happiness. Then look at somebody, you know, like Brene Brown. Then look at Dan Ariely, who at the age of 18 had the vast majority of his body burned by oil and spent three years in a burn unit in the hospital and ask him how he defines it. You know, there is, I do believe that there are some big common themes, um, but on a nuanced level, you know, it really, the answer has to be running a series of experiments, you know? So like, I do believe that there are these themes of vitality, connection, and contribution, but how to fill those buckets is something that we all need to experiment with. So like my goal in the book was, let me start you off with 10 ways to fill each one. And hopefully this serves it as like a primer to get you into the habit of experimenting. You know, some of them are going to do great for you. Some of them maybe not, but it's going to get you into the habit of continuing to try things to see what really is going to be the, you know, the recipe for you, for your good life. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful way. Um, that's a beautiful way to go about it. The challenge that I'll say for anyone reading how to live a good life, because I think this is a challenge we have as a people is there will be some things that really work for you, but they're either new or to continue to do them will require either lifestyle changes or fierce conversations or things like that. And because you, because you come up against those obstacles, doesn't mean that that is not for you. It just means that you found something and you got to lean into it a little more, which means You've got to lean out of other things. Luckily, one of the buckets is learning how to say no. Yeah. I mean, there's some really basic practical skills in there. There's some bigger nuanced ideas and practices, but there's some basic. <laughs> that's That's been a biggie for me. All right. So wrapping things up, um, I always like to let our jam guest um, issue the challenge or the invitation for our listeners for one thing that they can do today that would, um, besides buy the book, obviously, um, that would help them um, live a good life. So if you had to issue that invitation or challenge, what would it be? Um, okay, so I'll throw out something. Uh, I call it the give 30. Um, so in a 24-hour window, so I'm going to expand it beyond like sunset today. I'll say like in a one-day sequence here. Uh, any opportunity you have to give or to help somebody that will take you less than 30 seconds to do it. Um, you have to do it up to 30 times. It doesn't have to be big. It could be just shaking somebody's hand. It could be acknowledging somebody on the street who feels unseen. It could be, it could be giving somebody change. It could be helping someone across the street, helping someone hang something, helping you know, whatever it may be. Uh, it could be the tiniest little thing. What you'll find initially people are like, well, 30 times, oh man, that's a lot. And then what you realize is once you prime your brain to look for it, you can't stop seeing opportunities. You're like, oh my God, it's, you know, I'm just finishing coffee in the morning and I'm already 15 in, um, you know, that actually looking your barista in the eye and saying, thank you for taking care of me. This is really awesome that, you know, you put your love into this. Maybe that's not the comfortable language for you, but these tiny little moments. And what you'll find is that, um, these tiny little acts of giving, of generosity, they make a little difference in people's lives. But at the same time, there's a phenomenon called the giver's glow. It actually will really profoundly affect your state of mind and then trickle down into your state of physiology. 
That's wonderful. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining me today. As always, I'm always excited to talk to you. And um, I, I just want to say, um, you, you know, you've talked to me about this book and you're like, I don't know if you're going to like it, Charlie. Like, I don't, I love the book. And I'm so glad that you would. I'm so proud of you for doing the, the hard work of going through the manuscripts and stepping into this new space to get it shipped out in the world. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the invitation to uh, have a conversation and share it with your community. Okay, Creative Giant. So you heard it from Jonathan. 30 people, 30 seconds or less. What can you do to contribute to their happiness? It could be sending a text message to that person you've been thinking about, but not doing anything with saying, you know, thank you to your barista, whatever. 30 seconds, 30 people, one full day. You've got this. Until next time, stand tall. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll also likely enjoy Jonathan and my first episode, that's number five, and episode 82 with Mike Gonzalez. And if you're digging the Creative Giant Show, I'd really appreciate it if you leave a rating or review on iTunes. If you're not familiar with how to do this, there's a walkthrough available on the podcast page on ProductiveFlourishing.com. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.